0: Our God is so glorious and so good, Amen? Amen. Speaking of things that are are good, this morning, um, well, this wasn't good, but what came out of it was good. This morning, the the trailer was some hangups with the trailer, and usually it's here by by eight thirty, and it didn't get here because some trucks didn't work and things like that. Till like nine ten. And everything, nothing's fallen down yet this morning. Everything got set up, and you know what was so cool this morning is watching everybody jump in, pitch in, help set up. Nobody was frustrated or getting angry with each other. It was just patience all around and help. Them. Spirit of God in our midst. Amen. I don't know if I should do this. Um, is it okay? That's all right if I do this. I'm looking at somebody in particular, and they're like, okay. So our brother Daniel has some news that I'm going to make you share it. So you get to stand up and and share with us this really exciting news. So we can celebrate with you and the person sitting next to you. So you can stand up right there. (laughs) that's the most important part he asked and she said yes (laughs) awesome so congratulations for you guys so next week's the wedding so (laughs) no pray for them as they as they now walk through all of that wonderful process of getting everything ready for the wedding and then then the real the real adventure starts amen amen Let's pray I'm get in the word this morning. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this, this gracious, wonderful, precious family and uh, the fellowship that we share in Jesus Christ. And I thank you that your spirit, that the Lord Jesus is here with us through the spirit ministering to us this morning. And so as we gather together around your word, Father, we ask that the Spirit would be helping us to see clearly, clearly the glory of Jesus. Give give freedom this morning in exposing these hearts of ours, the struggles we have with them, and help us see as those are exposed the glorious sufficiency of Jesus, and what this life in Christ is truly all about. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, sometime around the year 1440 B.C., 1440 B.C., in an ancient Canaanite village, a man, I want you to picture this, a man moves quickly through the streets in the first light of dawn. And in that man's arms is a child, newborn child, newborn baby boy. And this baby boy has just been taken from the arms of his mother, He's exhausted and, and grieving mother. This boy has been taken by his father, and he has been taken for a disturbing purpose. You see, this, the parents of this baby boy are worshipers of the Canaanite god, Moloch, and they believe that Moloch controls life and death, uh, that, that, that the prosperity of their family and their village rests in the whims and the desires of this ancient Canaanite god, and they believe that they have to keep him happy. They believe that if they want prosperity, if they want healthy children and healthy livestock, and if they... They want to live healthy lives. They need to appease Moloch. And so, in the early light of dawn, that's what this father is attempting to do. You see, he knows what's required, he knows a sacrifice must be given. So, he steals his courage to give it. He summons his courage to give his own child, his own baby boy. As a sacrifice, an offering to this God of the underworld. And as he arrives at the home of the priest, and he places his own flesh and blood in the hands of that priest, hands that will offer that child to the fires of Moloch, he tells his own heart, But this is the way. This is the way. This is the way that it is. He tells himself, This is the way of our God. And his demands. This is the way. For us to have the life that we want. And the life that we need. Some 600 years later. Around 840 BC. Another man. Sits alone in a little stone house. In the land of Phoenicia. And it's late at night. And that little stone house is dark. There's only a single oil lamp burning to keep this man company. But this man is awake in the middle of the night, sitting in the dark, sitting beside this single oil lamp, because he's waiting. He's waiting for his wife. He loves her. He loves her. But he hates where she's gone. You see, earlier that evening, his wife left with some other women of the village. And together they traveled to the high places, To the hillsides outside of town. And there around what's called the Asherah pole. These women will meet with some of the priests of the village. The priests of Baal. And they will give themselves to those priests. They will offer their bodies to those priests. In hopes of arousing the attention, the excitement of Baal. And as this man sits alone waiting for his wife to return from the high places. His heart is filled with anger. Why? Why is this the way? Why must my wife do this? Why is that what Baal demands? But then alone in the dark, the man reminds himself, but this is the way. This is the way that it is. This is the way to summon Baal to send his fertile rain upon our dry soil. This is the way to ensure our crops are fruitful and our livestock are abundant and our women aren't barren. This is the way of our God and his demands. This is the way for us to have the life that we want and the life that we need. Hundreds of years later, miles away... In the Roman city of Lystra, in the province of Galatia, a grubby young man stands at the entrance of the Temple of Zeus. The year is AD 53. And this young man holds the entirety of his worldly wealth in his hands. Just a few small coins. And this poor young man, he lives on the streets. He begs, he borrows, he steals just to survive. He has no education, he has no prospects, he has no one to help him out of his destitution. But that's why he's come to the temple of Zeus. That's why he's come with all of his worldly wealth in his hands. Now, now he knows. He knows that these few small coins could, could buy him some bread, some food to fill his empty stomach. But today he wants He wants deliverance. He wants deliverance from his his painful, empty existence. He wants to be someone, to have something, to rise up above his station. And so he has come here to the temple of Zeus, the God of gods. As he gives all that he has, he prays, longing for Zeus to see him, to hear him, to come to his aid. And he knows it's a risk. He knows he's nothing in the eyes of the gods. But he tells himself, but this is the way. This is the way that it is. Sacrifice is the way to get their attention. Giving all that I have in order to help adorn their temples with gold and splendor. This is the way of our gods and their demands. This is the way. For me to have the life that I want. And the life that I need. Now. Each one of those stories that I just shared with you. It represents realities of life in the pagan culture that surrounded both ancient Israel and the New Testament church. Both Israel and the first century church were surrounded by people who embraced all kinds of abhorrent pagan Worship practices. They worshipped everything. They worshipped animals and planets and forces of nature. Even political figures they deified. People in those cultures performed self-mutilation as an act of worship. They sold themselves into temple prostitution. They drank blood. They consulted demonic spirits. They set up shrines all over their homes and on every street corner. But they did it all for a reason. They did it all for a reason. You see, they believed that was the way that life worked. They viewed worship as a transactional activity. And and what I mean by that is that to them, worship was a system to be worked. It was like pulling a lever, like turning a wheel, like pushing a button. It was about jumping through the right hoops, following the right procedures, working the right steps in order to get what you want. And so, they worked the system. If you wanted fertile crops, you sent your wife to be defiled by the priests at the Asherah Pole. If you wanted a prosperous village, then somebody needed to sacrifice a child to Moloch. If you wanted to rise up above your station, then you better be willing to sacrifice big in order to get the God's attention. Worship was a transactional pursuit. It was all about a system, working a system to get what you wanted and what you needed. That was the way of ancient paganism. But here's the thing. Honestly, that's still the same way it is for many people today. That's still the same way it is for many people today. Now, in our culture, our American gods don't have names like Moloch or Chemosh or Baal or Zeus. Instead, they go by names like money, sex, power. But it's still the same game. It's still transactional worship. Take the husband who willingly sacrifices the health of his marriage and time with his children in order to appease the God of business. And he thinks to himself, yeah, I'd rather be home with my family, but this is the way that it is. If you want to have material security, this is what business demands. In other words, this is what the gods require. Or take the young woman. Addresses in a way that makes her feel embarrassed and like an object. But she knows in this culture, that is what the God of sex requires. She doesn't want to be lonely. She wants to get the attention of young men and be viewed as desirable. Well, she tells herself, that's just the way that it is. Again, that is what my God requires. Or think of the older couple who feels like society is changing so fast and in ways that they never imagined, never wanted. And along comes a politician. Along comes a politician. And he promises. He promises to return things to the way they used to be. He promises them power and a voice and giving them back control. However, that politician is a person that 20 years ago, they would have viewed as unfit for public office. They listen to him lie. They listen to him manipulate. They listen to him ridicule people. Yet they vote for him. Because that's the way the God of politics works. They tell themselves that's just the way that it is. You see, just like the ancients, our culture has its gods. And we too try to work their system. In order to get what we want. Brothers and sisters, sadly, the default of the fallen human heart is this transactional worship of paganism. We approach the gods of our culture like they are vehicles that take us where we want to go. So we make our sacrifices and then we hop aboard. We sacrifice family and decency and values and integrity to get things that we believe will give us the life that we want and the life that we need. But here's the thing. The sad reality is that transactional worship only brings bondage. It only brings bondage. And sometimes that bondage is so hard to escape. It's so hard to escape. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote his letter to the churches. In Galatia. You see, he knew. He knew about their pagan past. And he knew about their transactional approach to worship. And he also knew that they'd been delivered from it. But like an old pair of shoes, they found comfort in those old ways. So they were sliding right back into them. They were creating a form of Christian paganism. Christian paganism. So, as we return to our study of Galatians 4 this morning, we're going to see Paul give the Galatians a severe warning against Christian paganism. Christian paganism. Go ahead and turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Turn over to Galatians chapter 4. And and as you're turning there, let me explain that I know that this phrase, Christian paganism, sounds a bit like an oxymoron. (laughs) And that's because it is. It is. It's it's contradictory ideas jammed together. Christian paganism. It's contradictory ideas jammed together. But but that's what was going on in Galatia. They were approaching their Christianity in a very non-Christian way. They were approaching it like a system to be worked. They were approaching it like their old pagan worship. And we see this in our text for this morning. We see this. And what Paul says to them starting in verse 8. In there, Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Paul writes, Formerly, verse 8, formerly, when you did not know God, so back when you were pagans, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now, now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak? And worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years, you're back to work in a system. And he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. See, what we're going to discover this morning as we work through this text is that to approach the Christian life like it is a system to be worked is to approach life no different than we did before we knew God. It's to approach life no different than we did before we knew God. It is to live life no different than we did under the pagan systems of worship from which we have been liberated through faith in Jesus Christ. Transactional Christianity is really pagan Christianity. It's Christian paganism. That's what Paul is saying That's a strong warning. That's a strong warning that he has for these Galatians and that God has for us through his word this morning. So let me unpack this now and let me show you how Paul makes this point. How Paul makes this point. First, Paul begins here by reminding his readers that they once lived a life of transactional Bondage, transactional bondage. Paul tells them again, verse eight. when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Paul reminds them that there was a time when you were in bondage, a time when you were enslaved to pagan gods. And, and this bondage, he says, it was rooted in their ignorance. Before they knew the true and living God, they thought this is the way. This is the way that life works. They believed worship life was transactional. They believe you had to give in order to get. They believe the gods have the power, and if you want life to be for you instead of against you, you have to jump through all of their ordained hoops. And again, this is the reality of paganism. This is the reality of paganism, both ancient and modern. Whether we are talking about ancient pagan peoples or about us as modern Americans, we, we can fall into the same trap From our ignorance, we think that the path to blessing, the path to life, the path to what our hearts desire is transactional. In other words, work to get what you want. Sacrifice, and sacrifice dearly to get what you need. Give what the gods demand, whether those are the the ancient gods of the Galatians, or the modern gods of we Americans. Give what the gods demand. But the big problem is... These gods aren't real gods. These gods aren't real gods. They are just a form of bondage. Paul says, look at the text. You were enslaved. Look at what he says here. You were enslaved to those that by nature, by their very nature, are not gods. By nature, these things that we worship, whether that is the ancient vile god Moloch or our modern god of politics, They don't have the power that we think that they do. They don't have the power that we think that they do. They aren't, by nature, gods. They are not divine. They do not truly have control. They are not really sovereign. They are not actually omnipotent. They are not all glorious. And they are not even close to all satisfying. They are not the way to true life and real joy and abiding peace. They are, by nature, not God, not God, and said by nature, they are a deception. They are a deception. They are not gods pretending to be God, not gods pretending to be God. And they pretend, they pretend by offering power and control and meaning and satisfaction. That's why. That's why a man would sacrifice his own child to Moloch or his, or, or his wife to the priest at the Asherah pole or his family to the God of business. There is a promise, promise of gain, promise of security, a promise of prosperity, a promise of power. But it's all, it's all a deception It's all a deception. It's all demonic, fleshly, smoke and mirrors. It's like in Tolkien's story, The Lord of the Rings. How many of you guys have read that story, seen the movies? You know the story. They're the people of Middle Earth. Remember, they're offered these rings of power. Objects that they are told will make them great leaders, mighty rulers. But they were all deceived. They were all deceived. For the one who had forged the rings of power, the dark lord Sauron, he'd also forged another ring, right? The one ring for himself. The one ring to rule all the others. You see, they thought it was an offer of power, but instead it was all a deception. And it was a deception to bring them into bondage. And that's the same way it is with life with these not-gods. It's bondage. It's enslaving. You end up enslaved to a system. Again, this is the reality of transactional worship. You end up working to try to get. You end up jumping through the hoops of these not gods, whether those hoops are the demands of the ancient Canaanite gods or or our modern American versions. You end up jumping through the hoops, and your life becomes all focused on those hoops. You end up in bondage to the hoops. So we spend all of our time on our jobs. Because we're chasing the satisfaction promised by the God of materialism. Or we sneak away to the altar of pornography because we've embraced the lie of fulfillment through pleasure. We we pour ourselves into supporting this or that political candidate, believing that that's the answer to hope for our country. We, we run to the God of family because we've been told that if we're just the perfect mom or we're just the all-star dad. Or if we just have the most well-developed kids, then we'll find the meaning that we crave. But it's all chasing a lie. As Solomon says in his Sermon of Sermon that is Ecclesiastes, Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Vanity. All the gods of this world, the gods that are not gods, are offering us with their invitation to transactional worship. All they are offering us is smoke. It's vanity. It's chasing after the wind. It's chasing a lie and getting nowhere but bondage. The bondage. But Paul says, that's where you used to be. That's where you used to be. That used to be your reality. You used to be in bondage. But something glorious has happened. Paul says, look at the text. Paul says, verse 9, Now you have come to know God. Or rather, be known by God. You've come to know God and rather be known by God. And Paul here is describing a radical transformation. He's talking about going from, from ignorance to intimacy. From, from bondage to freedom from a lifestyle of transactional exchange to the true life of Eden-like relationship with God. You have come to know God and be known by God. However, if you really stop and think about what Paul is saying here, at first glance, this is, this is a rather frightening thought, to know God and be known by God. And I say that because we're not talking about the pretend, the not gods anymore. We're talking about the true and living God. We are talking about the one who is so glorious, so awesome, so holy, that angelic beings, beings if they were present here right now, would frighten us to death. But angelic beings veil their faces in the presence of this one. We are talking about one who spoke. Think about this. He spoke the universe into existence. The God who sustains all life. By his own sovereign will. We're talking about the God who sits enthroned in the heavens. And who laughs at the nations. The superpowers as they rage. We're talking about the giver. And the taker of life. The righteous judge over all humanity. The consuming and holy fire. The one who dwells in eternity with no beginning and no end. We are talking about the true and living God. And Paul says you have come to know the true and living God. You've come to see God for who he is. You know him. He has revealed himself to you. You know now that Zeus is not God. You know now that Baal is not God. You know that sex and money and politics are not God. None of them are truly God. You have come to know the power that dwarfs them all. You have come to know God. And in one sense, that is a fearful thing. That is a fearful thing. But maybe not as fearful as Paul's emendation, his revision to his statement. Again, look at the text. Paul says, you have come to know God, or rather... To be known by God. Take a moment, think about that statement. Think about being known by God. And think about that from the perspective of what you know about your own heart. Think about that from the perspective of what you know about your own heart. Scripture says, Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's like it's like a rat's nest in there, isn't it? Our hearts are so full of greed and arrogance and lust and pride, and, and we have these we have these anxious thoughts. that that slink around in there, these anxious thoughts that make us feel spineless. And we have these these angry thoughts in there that that thrash about in there that make us feel like a monster. And we have these, these lustful thoughts that streak through these hearts of ours. Thoughts that would embarrass us, that would humiliate us if anyone ever saw them. And so take what you know, what you know about your own heart, and imagine your heart laid bare. Imagine if everyone here could see what you know creeps around in there. Imagine if we were to bring that all up on the platform this morning, up on the stage this morning, for everyone here this morning to behold here's your heart. And what if they witnessed, they witnessed all of your anger, all of your pride, all of your, your craziness, all of your anxiety and doubts and fears and lusts and lies and greed. What if it was all laid bare up here like some kind of morbid yard sale? But more daunting than that, think about it all laid bare for him to see. Think about your heart laid bare before the holy, sovereign, righteous, and judge judge of the universe. The one who hates sin and who says of himself, Exodus 34, 7. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Think about truly being known by that God. about that. But what is fascinating to me, what is fascinating to me about what Paul says here, is he never presents this as a fearful reality. Instead, he presents it as a freeing one. Not a fearful reality, a freeing one. Again, what he is talking about here in verse 9 is the antithesis of life under the not-gods. And life under the not-gods was a life of, of bondage. It was a life of slavery. But now he says, you have come to know freedom. To know God or rather be known by God. But here's the question. Why is that freedom? Why isn't it bondage? Why isn't it slavery? Why isn't that a fearful reality? Well, first, it's freeing because knowing God and being known by God is the reality for which we were created. It's the reality for which we were created. Brothers and sisters, that's what Eden was all about. That's what Eden was all about. It wasn't simply about walking around naked with no shame. It wasn't simply about eating all kinds of amazing fruit and dwelling in some kind of garden paradise. No, Eden was all about knowing God and being known by God. It was a life of of joyful, glorious, peaceful intimacy with our creator God. It was about loving Him and being loved by Him. It was about delighting in Him and con delighting in us. Life was not simply about the gifts like in transactional worship. It was about delighting in the giver. It was about enjoying the reality of true relationship with God. The reality for which we were created. That's what Eden was about. But through the fall, what happened? We jacked it all up, Right? We fell from all of that. Our sin brought separation, brought division. It brought guilt and shame and condemnation. Because of the reality of our sin, because of the reality of our sin and God's holiness, knowing God and being known by God became a fearful, not a freeing thing. But then something happened and that, praise God, changed all that. Amen? Something happened to change all that. Back in verse 4, remember? Remember what Paul said? We looked at it the last few weeks. Back in verse 4, Paul told us, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying this cry of intimacy, Abba, Father. And so, Paul says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. You see, through the Father's plan, accomplished by the Son, and which we experience through the Holy Spirit, there has been a radical, freeing transformation. We've been given a glorious new identity. A glorious new identity. We've gone from condemnation, saying about it this morning, we've gone from condemnation to redemption. We've gone from rightly under the judgment that was due our sin to those who've been delivered from it through the finished work of Jesus. Yes, these hearts of ours are a rat's nest. And yes, they should bring down upon us condemnation. They should have us living in fear of being known by God. But Christ came and he died upon that cross for everything lurking in these rats' nests. He died upon that cross to actually atone for every sin, past, present, future, in the lives of all of his people. Your rat's nest heart, my rat's nest heart, is covered by the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's covered by the blood of Jesus. And because of the life of Jesus, God's justice is satisfied towards you. That's what it means to be redeemed from under the law. The the law's demands are no longer hanging over your head ready to crush you. And they're no longer hanging over your head ready to crush you. Because through faith in, the, in Jesus Christ, you have been united to him. And his sinless, law-perfect life is now your life. And every time the law makes depend, demands upon you saying, do this and live. The answer comes, I've already done it. I've already done it in Christ. I've already done it in Christ. But, but here's the thing, Paul's telling us, not only do we go from condemnation to redemption, we also go from slavery to sonship. We who were once in bondage, not only to the not-gods of this world and their transactional system, but also to life under the law and the condemnation we were carrying because of it, we now have stepped into the freedom of sonship. We've stepped into the freedom of sonship. We've gone from slave, being slaves to sons. And that means we've now gone from (laughs) this difficult, exhausting life of a slave to now living in all the blessings of being a son. We have the inheritance. We have the position. We have the privileges, all the privileges of sonship. God welcomes us. Take a moment, think about that. God welcomes us. As our father who delights in us, he welcomes us like he welcomes his son, Jesus Christ. Because through faith in his son, we are in his son. Do you, do you see? Do you see? We now have with God a life of joy. A life of peace. We have the spirit of of the Son, dwelling in our hearts, teaching us, teaching us day after day after day, the blessings of intimacy with the Father, teaching us to cry out, Abba, Father, Daddy. And the Father's response is never, Who are you? Why would I love you? You're just a sinner. That's never the response. No, his His response is, You're in my son. I want you to know me. And I, I know you. I know you. I know you with love. I know you in joy. I know you with peace. I know you as my delight. This is what the Father is saying to us. This is what the Son has given to us. This is the reality of each and every Christian. This is the joy of redemption. The blessing of sonship. This is the reality of our new identity. We can now delight as those who are known by God. And this this is so important. You didn't work for any of that. (laughs) You didn't work for any of that. There's nothing transactional about this relationship. There's nothing transactional about this relationship. Instead, this is a relationship of grace. Notice in those verses that I read, verses 4 to 7. Notice the trajectory of the action. Look at the trajectory of the action. It's not you give in order to get. That's not the action. He gave. So it goes the other direction. He gave, so you get. He gave his son, he gave the spirit of his son, he gave redemption and sonship, and he gave salvation. And he gave it all, and this is what you need to understand. He gave it all so that you could know him and be known by him. So that you could know him and be known by him. You see, it's not worship as a transaction to get some stuff. It's not the gods of paganism. It's not gods as a means to an end. No, instead, it's God, the true and living God, as the end, as the goal. He's not a means to an end. He is the end. It's the joy, brothers and sisters, the joy of knowing him and being known by him. It's what we were created for. It's what we were created for. That's where our hearts truly find rest. It's where our hearts truly find joy and peace and delight. Knowing and being known by our God. And it's all ours. It's all ours by grace. We, through Christ, have been given the grace of intimacy with God. And if you take nothing from this message this morning, I hope you take this. I'll leave everything else take this. This is what the Christian life is all about. This is what the Christian life is all about. I'll put it this way. This is what life is all about. Jesus, I I love this. Jesus says this. John 17, 3. Mark this verse down. This is one to memorize, okay? John 17, 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life. And you think he goes on to talk about mansions and glory and no more bunions and seeing Aunt Mildred. And, you know. No. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life, Jesus says. And Jesus says that in the confession of prayer with his Father. This is eternal life. That they may know you. The only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And without that, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, without that, it doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter what you have. We could pull a library of biographies from history and it would show us this over and over again. It doesn't matter what you have. Pleasure. Power. Sex. Wealth. Family. Family. Health, it doesn't matter. Again, to quote Solomon, it's all vanity. It's all smoke. It's all empty and meaningless. But with God, with God at the center, everything else falls into place. Everything else falls into place. Life becomes life. Life becomes life. It becomes all about fellowship with Him. All about delighting in Him. All about celebrating Him and knowing Him. Instead of becoming a means to an end, He becomes the end of every means. It becomes the end of every means. So our jobs become an avenue to know him and walk with him. Our families become a place to celebrate him and center upon him. Our marriages become a place for for faith in him and dependence on him. Our, Our life as citizens in this country and members of this church become all about proclaiming him and calling others to find the delight that we have found in him. You see, life is about him. It's about him. It's about knowing and being known by him. It's not about a transactional give to get. It's about the freedom of our relational intimacy with God, grounded in grace, grounded in grace. But that is exactly what the Galatians were missing. That's what they were missing. They were selling the family farm for a handful of magic beans they were selling their birthright for a bowl of porridge. And they were doing that by turning back to their transactional bondage. Back to their transactional bondage. So, again, look at the text. <laughs> look at the text. Verse 9, Paul says, But now you have come to know God or rather be known by God. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how? How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. You see, like a comfortable old pair of shoes, the Galatians were sliding right back, right back into their old paganism. But here's the thing they were doing so under the guise of Christianity. They were doing so under the guise of Christianity. We've talked about this in in our study of this letter, but these these Jewish, and I even hesitate to call them this, Jewish Christians, pseudo-Christian, these Jewish Christian teachers had come to town, talked about this. They'd come to town, and they had told these Galatians that if you really want to be accepted by God, if you truly want God's blessings, if you want the promises, if you want the inheritance, then faith alone and Christ alone, that's not enough. They said there are rules. There's a system, and you have to work the system. That's what they were saying. You have to give to get. You have to observe to receive. You have to keep God's laws... In order to truly get the blessing of life as a Christian, they were preaching a religion of works. And here's the thing. It appealed to the Galatians. It appealed to the Galatians because it was just like the paganism that they'd come out of. It was just like the paganism that they'd come out of. It was just another system. This one only had the label Christianity over the top of it. Paul says here, no, 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 no. That's not Christianity. That's nothing but bondage. It's bondage. It's going back. Going back into slavery. Going back into slavery. And what I find fascinating and a little shocking here is that Paul, in doing this, he compares, and I find this surprising, but he compares life, he compares the law, life under the law, to their paganism. Kind of connects the two together. Again, look at the text. He says, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. And he's talking about their keeping of the law. They're observing of days and months and seasons and years. But he's comparing it. It's just like your pagan slavery. He's taking life under the law and relating it to pagan slavery. Again, here he uses this phrase. Look at the text. The elementary principles of the world. And as we've talked about before, that's Paul's description Of life under the law. Remember, life under the law was like life in elementary school. It was life under the elementary principles. we talked about this. The law was like the ABCs of life. The law teaches us about God, right? Teaches us about his holiness, his sovereignty, his righteousness. The law also teaches us about ourselves, right? Teaches us that we are not sovereign or holy or righteous. And the law, rightly understood, it also points us to Christ. It's the ABCs that get us ready for the graduation of the gospel. But here, Paul compares life under the law to life under paganism. And he calls it weak and worthless. And that seems really shocking. That doesn't seem much like Psalm 119. seems really shocking. Again, he calls it weak. And that word that is translated here by the ESV as weak is a word that can mean sick and powerless and impotent word which the ESV translates as worthless, is a word that can also be brought across as poor, impoverished, beggarly, or bankrupt. So Paul here, he's not painting a pretty picture of the law. Again, it's actually a pretty surprising picture, but I think it's a picture that makes sense when you realize what was going on. You see, these Jewish pseudo-Christian teachers were hijacking the law. Actually, they were hijacking Christianity because they are throwing Jesus into this mix too. But they were hijacking the law, and they were taking the law and making it a, a transactional system that you had to work in order to get what you wanted. They were saying, you need to go back to the law and use it for this purpose for which it was never intended. Instead of using it to teach you about God and sin and your need for a Savior, instead of letting it lead you to Christ and terminate in Christ and a life of faith in Christ... They were marketing the law as a system that you had to work in order to get a quote-unquote godly life. A life of blessing with God. But such an approach is sick. It's sick. It's weak. It's impoverished. It's bankrupt. It's worthless. Hijacking the law and making it a system that you work in order to get blessing. That kind of life under the law is weak and worthless. It's not going to work. It's not going to work. It's just as enslaving as transaction, the transactional paganism that the Galatians were delivered out of. You see, all these Jewish pseudo Christian teachers were doing through their legalism was creating Christian paganism. Legalism does the same thing today. Same thing today. It just creates Christian paganism. And so Paul says, I'm greatly concerned. He says, look at the text, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. In other words, I preach to you a gospel of freedom. I preach to you the gospel of grace. I I never preached to you a transactional system. I preached the joy of knowing God and being known by God through the grace of the finished work of Jesus. So what in the world are you doing? That's what he's saying to them. Has it all been a waste? Was it all in vain? Paul says to them, I've I've told you about the greatest blessing ever. And how it's all given to you freely. But you can't seem to let go of your transactional approach to life. You can't seem to break the bondage of your pagan thinking. Did I labor over you in vain? Did I labor over you in vain? Was it all in vain? That's a stern warning to the Galatians, don't you think? And brothers and sisters, it's a stern warning to all of us. It's a stern warning to all of us. Are we living the Christian life? Or are we living the vain, empty life of Christian paganism? Are we living the Christian life? Or are we living the vain, empty life of Christian paganism? Let me ask you this question. What is your life about? What is your life about? You know, I I say this all the time. I'm not asking you to think through that question from the perspective of your spouse or the perspective of all of us as a church. Individually, I want you to think through this question. What is your life all about? Is it about knowing God and being known by God? Or is it about something else? Is it about something else and God is just a vehicle to get you to that something else? Jesus is just a vehicle to get you there. As Christians, we can fall into that trap. We can fall into that trap. Our Christianity become can become a vehicle to have the family that we want, the society that we want, the job and marriage and lifestyle that we want. And so we try, we try to jump through just the right hoops. We go to church. We give money, we vote for the quote unquote Christian politicians, we try to be good husbands and good wives and good children, we work the system. But Christianity is not about a system. Christianity is not about a system, it's not about using God as a means to an end. No, instead, in true Christianity, God is the end. Amen? God is the end. And he has given to us. He is given to, intimacy with God is given to us, not by working a system, but through the finished work of Christ. And he's given to us. He's given us so that we can delight in him. And know him. And be known by him. And our life then flows out of that reality. Knowing him and being known by him. We become godly husbands. We become godly wives. We become godly children and godly citizens and godly pastors and godly church members and godly neighbors. Because we've been with God. Because we've been with God. As I've been saying to you, and I will will keep saying it to you. We live out of who we are. We live out of who we are. And through, the, through grace, through grace, we are those who have real life, a life of intimacy with God. And that's what Christianity is all about. That's what Christianity is all about. It's about that. It's about a life with God, not a life working God. You understand the difference? It's about a life with God, not a life working, manipulating God. So here's my application for you this morning. Ready? Here's the application. God. (laughs) God. Know God. Pursue being with him. Spend time with him. Delight yourself in knowing him and being known by him. Pursue the delight of Eden. Because... Through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. That's yours. It's yours. Freely, fully, gloriously. It's yours. To know God. And be known by God. Don't work the system. Live out a relationship. Live out a relationship. We're going to do that right now. As we gather together around the Lord's table. See, as we gather together around the Lord's table, let me remind you, this is not some ritual that we practice. Instead, the Lord gave us this. He gave us this, that we might draw our focus into the grace of our relationship with him. Around the table, what do we remind ourselves? What do we remind ourselves of? We remind ourselves that he gave his life for us. That he shed his blood for us. And he did that. He did it all. So that through faith we could be brought into a relationship with God. Communion is not a ritual that saves us. Instead it's simply a reminder of our relationship with the one who did save us. Jesus saves. Amen? Jesus saves. And so we remember him and our relationship with him. We delight in our relationship with him as we gather together around the table. So I'll ask the men to come forward, and let's go to our God in prayer. Heavenly Father. oh, what a blessing to call you Father. Heavenly, Father, holy, one. Sovereign, just, wise, merciful, gracious, good we love you and we love you cuz you you first loved us you brought us into this it wasn't simply about us chasing you trying to be trying to know you no know. it's you knowing us you coming to us you bringing us into relationship with yourself and we praise you for that i pray i pray for everyone here this morning Help us to see, help us to think through how we are approaching life. If we are still, still buying into that law, that lie that life is a system to be worked. The gods of this world, or even you, the true and living God, are a means to an end. Break us free from that bondage. Help us to see just the absolute folly Of that way of thinking. Help us to see that that through Jesus we've been given this grace of knowing you and being known by you. We've been given the life of Eden. Help us to truly see that to be people who who walk around with these big stupid smiles on our faces because we can't believe what we've been given. You. And help us live out of that. Help that shape all the ways that we approach all the things that go through our day, the things that happen in our culture, things that happen in our church and happen in our families. And they all become a means to the ends of knowing you. All places where we fellowship with you, where we depend on you, where we delight in you, where we proclaim you. May we live out of this relationship with you. And we thank you that we get to celebrate that as we gather together around this table. We confess as we gather together around this table that without the sinless life of Jesus and without the atoning death of Jesus this relationship would never happen. We would always be separated from you, always under judgment. Being known by you would always be a fearful reality. But we thank you that because of what Jesus has done, because of his sinless life lived for us and his atoning death died for us, that what was once fearful is now freeing. We praise you Holy God, for what you have done for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glorious plan. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mighty victorious work. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for coming to these hearts of ours, opening these eyes of ours, and stopping these ears of ours, and helping us to see and know the reality of salvation through Jesus Christ. And minister to these hearts of ours now, as we gather together around the Lord's table. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.